Defense of Plants is made possible by all of our wonderful patrons that support the podcast each and every month over at patreon.com slash plants. Their monthly contributions ensure that Indefensive Plants can continue to bring you amazing botanical and ecological conversations each and every week. If you are enjoying this podcast and want to help make free science communication possible, consider becoming a patron. By supporting the show, you will receive wonderful kickbacks like stickers, producer credits, and access to multiple mini bonus episodes each month. Consider becoming a patron today and help spread the love of plants around the globe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How's everyone doing this week? I'm doing great because this week we are looking at a group of plants I've been curious about for a very long time, the quillworts of the genus Isoedes. Now, if you're like me, you probably haven't had a lot of encounters, or at least not knowingly uh, encountered one of these species in the wild because they can be kind of obscure, a little cryptic because they look like a little rosette of grass or maybe a sedge, but they're a really fascinating plant lineage with very ancient history. Their ancestors lived during eras like the Carboniferous and were the size of trees, but today they may be at most a foot or so. Regardless, maybe some of you that are in the aquarium trade have come across them before, but that is going to be the topic of our discussion, just how interesting they are, what they can tell us about evolution, and some interesting things that they're doing with their photosynthetic pathways. Joining us to talk about this is David Wickle, who is a PhD student in the School of Integrative Plant Science and Plant Biology at Cornell. And David has a really interesting take on what's going on with the quillworts. I don't want to keep you from this conversation any longer. It is just mind-blowingly awesome. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with David Wickle. I hope you enjoy. All right, David Wickle, it's awesome to have you on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk with you today, but let's start off by introducing yourself. Let's tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Uh, yeah, so my name is David Wickle. I just finished my third year of my PhD program at Cornell. Congrats. Um, in Feiwei Lee's lab, uh, fern extraordinaire. Hmm. Uh, though though now I think he's, he's more onto bryophytes than ferns these days. It happens. But... Yeah, I mean, ferns are, are certainly what brought me to his lab. So prior to this, I, I did a master's degree at Wichita State University with Dr. James Beck. And that project was about asexual biogeography mm. in these dry adapted ferns. Nice. So chylanthoid ferns are really cool. Uh, I think that it's one of those things kind of kind of like what we're going to talk about today that people are always surprised about, you know, that ferns <laughs> grow in the desert. And, and I was really drawn to them for, for this sort of unusual habitat you find them in. Um, and then also because ferns have a lot of strange biology. They, they hybridize very readily, right? There are lots of very complicated sort of hybrid complexes. Um, you have lots of polyploids in ferns. Uh, so, so things that duplicate their chromosome numbers again and again and again. Hmm. And there's just sort of a lot of really interesting biology to tease apart there. So that's what sort of led me to, to Fei Wei's lab uh, where I'm working on a group called Isoedes not ferns, but, but seed-free plants nonetheless. <laughs> and also, I mean, today we're going to talk about cam photosynthesis, but, but the thing that really drew me to Isoedes in the first place was this high rate of hybridization mm. uh, and polyploidy that you find. Again, just some really interesting phylogenetic relationships uh, within Isoedes uh, that, that drew me to it in the first place. So yeah, uh, I, I came to Cornell, found out that 
Isoetes do cam photosynthesis, which, <laughs> you know, I had to like go back to some of my undergraduate notes to, <laughs> to even remember what that was. Um, I, like most people thought that this was something that just happened in desert plants yeah. and it was just immediately sort of drawn in the same way that, that ferns that grow in the desert, right. Had drawn me in before. So, yeah. That's awesome. I like sort of that journey into, whoa, this is doing something strange. And then you realize how many more strange things are happening. And that's how, you know, these careers are made. You just you if you're curious enough, you unlock an amazing world of discovery that yeah, and I, I think the strange things, right, are really where are yeah. really where we, we gain a better understanding sort of, of of the more typical things, right? Like right. it really gives us insight that, that we can't get in other groups. Yeah. And to me, uh, you know, as an amateur uh, fern person and as someone who really likes spore bearing stuff, but not necessarily all that good at <laughs> field botany for it, uh, you study one of the most interesting groups uh, in, in my mind. But where did this really begin for you? I mean, were you always a plant person and then you discovered your love of ferns or were you just kind of into nature and wanted to do something with evolution, biology, that sort of stuff? So when I was a kid and I'm sure this is true of a lot of kids. It was it was all reptiles. It was bringing like <laughs> snakes and frogs home, and yeah. I had very accommodating parents that allowed <laughs> me to throw these things into terrariums for a while and feed them, and then let them go. I was in the Kansas Herpetological Society for a while, nice. and, and that sort of introduced me to my love for field work. Right, uh, going out looking for something, sort of the satisfaction, right, of of finding this thing out in nature that you've been looking for. But it took me a while to come around to plants. Hmm. I I think that. In a lot of ways, it's it's easier to fall in love with animals, right? There are lots of very charismatic animals, certainly <laughs> when you're a kid. And I did my bachelor's research, actually, in, in entomology. Oh, nice. Yeah, looking at, at scarab beetles. And cool. that sort of introduced me to evolution and systematics and the phylogenetics of plants, again, due to their propensity for, for hybridization and polyploidy is, is just fascinating. I also really appreciate that the plants don't run away from me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, a sentiment I've heard echoed amongst a lot of botanists that started off in the animal world. You just go like, ah, as, as cool and amazing and how worthy plants are of study, there is something about that like, you can go out at any time of the day and they're going to be there provided yeah. they haven't gotten dug up or died. <laughs> That's yeah. great. And while they can certainly be, be difficult to find sometimes, there, there's something comforting about the fact that I can, I can look at locality data from 1960 mm. and, you know, there's a decent chance, depending on the plant, that, right. that there will still be a population there. Yeah, that's and it's wild, too, because it does kind of give you that interesting connection to the past where some either the actual plant or relatives of said plant are still there. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and and again, I think it's it's another thing that has sort of given me this passion for field work is is part of the the most interesting thing is pouring over this locality data, right? Yeah. And, and exploring these new places. And sometimes you go there and there's a strip mall, but sometimes you go there <laughs> and it's exactly as this person described yeah. in in 1959 or something. And and that's kind of a I don't know. It's 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 a really incredible experience. Yeah, yeah. It connects you through the ages, as they say. But so you're currently working on, like I said, a fascinating group of plants. They were once uh, true dominant players in the ecosystems of many, many millions of years ago. But today, as we were discussing before we hit the record button, uh, you can kind of lose them amongst a lot of other neighboring vegetation. But the Isoetes, I mean, I am enamored with this group. I know almost nothing about it, which is really why I was so excited to kind of dive into your work a bit. And uh, it sounds like you are also fascinated, I'd hope, by this this group of plants. But let's start with like a broad brushstroke. Just what is an Isoetes when you're saying this? Uh, and you mentioned they're kind of related to ferns, but they're not ferns. What's 
What's that yeah. all about? So, so ISOEs are, are like a fight, right? And they're this group. I, I think that you, you had Weston Testo on here talking yeah, about yeah. one point. They're this group that was traditionally, because they're spore producing plants, lumped in with ferns uh, under, under the broad title pteridophytes. Uh, since then, right, we found out that they're actually really deeply diverged groups. Hmm. Um, uh, lycophytes are no more closely related to ferns than, than they are to flowering plants, hmm. uh, diverged over 300 million years ago. Oh, that's it? <laughs> yeah. So that's another, that's another really cool thing about them, right, is they're, they're this lineage that has existed for a really long time. And, and as you sort of alluded to, the closest relatives of isoedes uh, in the fossil record, well, some of the closest relatives of isoedes in the fossil record are these enormous trees, uh, tree-like lycopsids, right? Sigillaria, lepidendron, these huge things that, that kind of towered over the, the carboniferous landscape, which is interesting because, again, nowadays, uh, isoedes are, are typically very small. Um, I think the, the very largest ones that, I, that I've heard of maybe get leaves that are two feet long. Oh, geez. Wow. And and these leaves emerge from this, this tiny little corm, uh, what we call a corm, basically a really reduced stem at the base. You know, it has this little rosette of leaves at the top. And then at the bottom, it has these bizarre sort of air-filled roots that, again, really resemble um, the stigmarian roots, the rootlets that they find in these ancient extinct lycopsids. Wow. So it's a fascinating group that's existed for a very long time as far as we can tell, relatively unchanged. You can, you can find fossils of isoedes from the Triassic period that for all intents and purposes look the same as the ones we find today. Wow. And, and there aren't a lot of plants you can say that for, right? Like it's, a, it's really incredible, again, kind of connection to the past. Yeah. I love ginkgos and don't get me wrong, I will sing their praise till the, my, my end of days. But, you know, there are living fossils, but by no means are they 300 million year old <laughs> or living fossils, yeah. you know, like that to me is just it's a mind blowing experience to be able to have the, 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 the wherewithal to like go into the field, be able to study these amazing plants, but also have that knowledge to connect it. And just I'm sure there's moments where you kind of have to just sit down and think for a second about how amazing that is. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And, and again, maybe perhaps not to the same extent, but it's another thing that really attracted me to ferns also, right, is, is this idea that these plants have existed for so long. I mean, nowadays, right, uh, the flora is very much dominated by angiosperms. But man, seed-free plants, ferns and lycophytes are, are survivors. They have, in one form or another, existed through so many different climate periods, so many different uh, types of animals have eaten them over, over <laughs> millions of years, you know, like, uh, it's it's kind of incredible to think about. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's so much still there to know and to understand about them. And, you know, I, I used to kind of think about like, oh, this hierarchy of evolution and primitive plants. No, 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 no. These are true success stories. They've, like you said, survived the ages, survived mass extinctions. They're great. There's nothing primitive about these plants. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and also, you know, I, I'm sure you've interviewed enough people to know. You always got to be careful calling things primitive around <laughs> around systematists or around phylogeneticists. I've learned hard uh, lessons early on for the same amount of time. <laughs> yes, no, and those were really important lessons to learn uh, in in sort of just the language we use to speak about this. And it, I do I never want to denigrate an organism of any type. Of uh, you know, like like you said, they've been evolving for the same amount of time, and they're here today because they made it. I hate to admit it, but I, I slip and do it sometimes too. I mean, you, you just hear things referred to as lower plants enough times. Yeah. Every once in a while, it slips out. Colloquialisms. Yeah. <laughs> 
So the other thing that I wanted to mention, right, is, is isoedes uh, are very diminutive and, and they have this very reduced morphology. They mm. all look really similar, which has sort of confounded people trying to classify them in the past. Mm. Um, as recently as the 80s, oh. I think there were maybe 60 described species. Huh. Um, and now, partly because a lot of new polyploid species are being defined, uh, we're, we're up over 200. So traditionally, the only way to tell these things apart is by ornamentation on their megaspores. Oh. And having looked at more than a few of these through a microscope, it is, a, it is an inexact science to say the least. <laughs> Um, wow. So, so yeah, another, another thing that's just sort of, sort of weird and challenging about this group of plants. Yeah. So if any of my floristic students are still listening to this podcast at any point, if they thought looking at minute features of leaf hairs or flower parts were a difficult task, uh, <laughs> Oh yeah. Come, make come a see our <laughs> we, we, There's, there's a whole different kind of nomenclature just, just to describe the types of features you see on these megaspores. One, one that I'm still becoming acquainted. Sweet. Well, hey, I mean, that's why I have so much respect for people such as yourself doing that effort, making that effort possible. But, you know, uncovering cryptic diversity among plants. I mean, that is so cool. But, you know, even within the individual operations of these organisms, you mentioned cam photosynthesis. And that was a big surprise for you because you said, you know, as many of us who are familiar with the process would think, oh, desert plants, cacti, other types of succulents. What the heck would a plant be doing uh, underwater most of the time or near a lot of water with cam photosynthesis? Yeah, right. Uh, so, I mean, the benefit of cam, as it was always described to me, is it allows these dry adapted plants to close their stomata during the day uh, to avoid water loss. So why on earth would something growing underwater need to <laughs> conserve water? And, and the answer is they don't. So it, it was sort of originally suggested that, you know, more than anything, CAM is a carbon concentrating mechanism. Mm. Um, and you find these aquatic CAM plants typically in environments where either the amount of, of CO2 available in the water fluctuates wildly throughout the day or is very low all day long. Oh. And, and so as a, it was suggested, right, that, that maybe this is an adaptation to this low CO2 level. Basically, allowing plants to sequester as much carbon dioxide as they can at night so that they can then then fix it during the day. Huh. And this was recently, so, so this has been proposed for a long time, but, but not really tested. Sure. Um, and it was recently borne out in this series of experiments by another graduate student named Jacob Suisa at, at Harvard, who basically took isoedes that were growing terrestrial. And, and this is something we'll get to in a minute when I talk about sure. cam a little more in depth. Um, but when isoedes grow terrestrially, they typically don't do CAM, they do C3. Oh. And he took these terrestrial isoedes and just reduced the amount of CO2 in the air. And lo and behold, huh. they started doing CAM photosynthesis. Wow. So, so that's the prevailing theory, right? Is, is it's the, the sort of the same adaptation to a different set of circumstances. That is so interesting to think about. And it just shows you how a quick shift on perspective on a process that, you know, is largely well-defined among plants in a bigger picture sort of sense. Just that shift of perspective changes the whole way we think about the impetus for evolving this process. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think because of that, uh, when, you know, Keeley first proposed that this was happening in Isoedes in the 80s, uh, there was a lot of sort of pushback, right? Mm. Uh, people were like, no, hold on. CAM is something that is adaptive for dry plants. This might look like CAM. This might be uh, I think there, it's been called lots of things, right? Nocturnal acid accumulation. 
But people really, really hesitated to call it CAN for that exact reason. It really challenged sort of our idea of, of what this form of photosynthesis was. <laughs> Let's just come up with a new term because there's no way this is the same thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Wow. And there's, so there are some yeah, very tortured attempts to sort of describe <laughs> what's going on without, without using that acronym. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cam adjacent um but what <laughs> is this unique among sort of pteridiophytes in general or is is cam sort of a broad brushstroke across different lineages of plants throughout the entire botanical kingdom yeah yeah no i'm glad you brought that up so that another fascinating thing about cam both in terrestrial and aquatic plants is it pops up again and again mm. and again it's sort of this classic example of convergent evolution of, of a complex trait so all across the plant kingdom, in monocots, dicots, uh, ferns, and, and also lycophytes, right, we find examples of plants doing, doing CAM. And they're not closely related. So each of them must have evolved it independently. Isoetes is, is sort of unusual among aquatic plants in that CAM seems to be the rule more than the exception. Hmm. Whereas in a lot of other aquatic plants, right, so, so Crassula aquatica is another kind of commonly cited aquatic cam plant. And within Crassula, most of the species are terrestrial. A lot of them are succulent. Certainly most of the cam plants are succulent. And, and the aquatic cam plants are sort of an exception. And okay. it's very common in isoetes. And in <laughs> fact, it's been suggested that basically wherever you find isoetes growing underwater, uh, they're probably doing cam photosynthesis. Wild. And it's cool too that they can shift. I mean, <laughs> the fact that you have both mechanisms available to you from a botanical standpoint is yeah. also pretty fascinating from an adaptive standpoint. Yeah. And this is another one of the problems, right, with defining CAM. Uh, so <laughs> not just is it, it's still called CAM in an aquatic plant. Is it still called CAM if you only do it some of the time or, or if maybe you, you keep doing CAM, uh, you keep stomata open a little bit longer during the day, right? Uh. There are all these variations, um, what's sometimes referred to as the CAM continuum from these facultative <laughs> plants that are capable of, of switching between C3 and CAM completely to obligate CAM plants, uh, right? Like a lot of cacti that no matter how much water you give it, it's, it's still going to keep doing CAM photosynthesis. So even, even defining this process that exists along a continuum is, is sort of problematic, right? Wow. Yeah. Who'd have thought biology is full of spectrums? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Lots of gray areas in biology, but that's what makes it a beautiful thing. Uh, but from a CAM perspective, you mentioned this as an adaptation in so many ways to carbon concentration, getting enough carbon in to make photosynthetic processes possible. So mm -hmm. why, how does CAM do that? Because, I mean, even for me, it's, it's been since my, probably my prelims, since I really thought about the process in detail. <laughs> sure, sure. So any carbon concentrating mechanism, right, let's, let's start there, has, has some kind of barrier to the diffusion of carbon dioxide. So in C4 plants, right, which we might have learned about, um, you have these superized bundle sheets that hold the carbon in. In terrestrial cam plants, you have high stomatal resistance, so they close their stomata during the day, right, to prevent CO2 loss. As a result, though, they're not taking any carbon dioxide up during the day either. And then in aquatic cam plants, that, that barrier is, is just the water. Carbon dioxide diffuses very slowly through water. So as a result, right, they're, they're sort of beholden to the amount of CO2 in the water nearby their leaves. So at its core, like I said, it's, it's this carbon concentrating mechanism. And in a lot of aquatic environments, 
the amount of CO2 fluctuates quite a bit during the day, either because of differences in temperature or because there are other photosynthetic organisms like algae using up the carbon dioxide during the day. So we'll focus on that example because I, I feel like it's a little easier to understand. But in a lot of these uh, sort of what are called mesotrophic lakes, right? So not a lot of nutrients, not a little bit. There are lots of other plants, algae in particular. And as soon as the sun comes out, those algae start doing photosynthesis and the carbon dioxide in the water plummets. But then at night, when the algae stop photosynthesizing, the carbon dioxide starts to climb again. And that is when these cam plants shine because they're able to take that up and sequester it as, as an organic acid called malate in the mm. vacuum. And then they store the malate overnight, right? Which results in sort of the, the characteristic trait of cam plants that, that their acidity goes up. Um, in fact, cam plants can be identified some of the time by if you take a leaf in the morning and touch it against your tongue, it tastes sour. Oh. And that's because of this nocturnal accumulation of, of acid. Wild. And then during the day, Right. If you're a terrestrial plant, you close your stomata, so no more CO2. Or if you're an aquatic plant and the algae starts sucking it all up, so no more CO2. Algae. You can take that malate, you can liberate the carbon molecules from it as carbon dioxide and feed it back into the citric acid cycle to make sugar. Nice. So it allows you to this mechanism to store up CO2 to sort of make hay while the sun is shining, right? <laughs> um, or while the sun isn't shining. In the sun. <laughs> and and it's, it's this great adaptation for, for plants that either need to save water or need to get their CO2 when it's available. Thank you so much for that eloquent overview of what can be a pretty complex process. I love the diagrams of like complexity going from like intro uh, biology in high school to like what <laughs> you as a graduate student are studying in this process. <laughs> so thank you. Uh, but, you know, when you say that a lot of different plants have kind of converged on this, this strategy of, of cam photosynthesis, whether that's, you know, facultative to obligate. To me, that sounds like there's a lot of different ways to do it as well. And that's where a lot of your research has come in. So as you look at sort of the genetic processes involved in stumbling across this, this wonderful method of concentrating carbon, do you see similarities or is there a lot of convergence in sort of a lot of different gene pathways or again, novice here talking about this sort of stuff? Is it no, similar yeah. among organisms, uh, even within isoetes? I, I suppose I'll start with terrestrial plants because that's where the bulk of the research has been okay. done. And, and it is very similar. And one of the interesting things that I, I don't know, I think I failed to point out about CAM, is when you're talking about something like C4, there are, there are functional differences. There are structural differences in mm. C4 plants versus C3 plants. They have those suberized bundle sheaths, things like that. In CAM plants, all the genes are the same. All the processes oh. are the same. But, but the way that they're regulated is different, the way okay. that they're expressed throughout the day. So genes that are expressed at relatively regular rates um, in C3 plants throughout the day uh, will cycle in CAM plants, right? So Pepsi um, is sort of the, the prototypical CAM enzyme. It's, it's the enzyme that takes bicarbonate and, and it fixes it with PEP into malate. So it's this really crucial step in CAM photosynthesis. And as you would expect, right, at certain times in, of, of the day, particularly at night, the plant needs a lot more CO or a lot more Pepsi. So the amount of Pepsi transcripts will peak and then drop off during the day when it's doing regular photosynthesis, right? When mm. it no longer needs this Pepsi to fix carbon dioxide. And crucially, the enzymes that we see cycling in terrestrial can plants and the way that they cycle, so when they peak during the day, 
uh, the pattern that they exhibit is very similar, hmm. very, very sort of conserved among all these different species, despite the fact that they seem to have evolved it independently. Of wow. Another. And it's sort of one of the things that makes it so fascinating, right, is, is we do see, I mean, there are subtle differences, but they're subtle, huh. which is what, again, really draws me to ISOEs and makes it so interesting, right? I mean, all, all of the research that's been done so far is in flowering plants. So we're talking about divergence times of, of tens of millions of years. There are a couple ferns that do CAM. Even there, though, uh, we're talking about a divergence time, you know, maybe around 200 million years ago. Isoetes is so different. It's been evolving along its own branch for so long <laughs> that it seems like if any of these plants functionally differ in, in how they sort of go through this process, right, this deal cycle of photosynthesis and, and fixation, maybe it's Isoetes. Yeah. Uh, I think. And, and so it, you know, provides this really interesting counterpoint to sort of try to get at the, at the root of what's going on. Huh. Wow. I, I like that train of thought, though. Uh, and for as much attention as flowering plants get, I mean, like you said, they're really recent on the landscape, I mean, relatively speaking. And it's funny that we're studying sort of the most derived versions of what it takes to do cam. So what happens when you sort of dive into this world of isoetes that have been at this for, you know, I mean, they, they seem to be like the original cam, <laughs> cam yeah, clan. Yeah. It's very tempting to say that. I, I, yeah, I hesitate yeah. to say that. <laughs> I was waiting yeah, to see what I mean, your eyes did, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I also really want that to be the case. Um, and, and, and there's some, there's some sort of anecdotal evidence, right, okay. that, that these plants may have evolved cam long before angiosperms. But again, yeah. we don't have these sort of physical changes to the plant, right, like we see in C4 plants. So you can't look at a fossil necessarily and say this thing was doing cam photosynthesis. But no, so when we look at isoetes, we, we really didn't know what to expect. Um, hmm. To some degree, we did. So some of the more basic work, right? Like, um, does melate cycle in isoetes? Does it peak at night and drop off during the day? That's been done, uh, and, and we know that it does. Um, other sort of major enzymes like Pepsi, right, have, have been analyzed um, to see if they also cycle, uh, if they peak at a certain time, drop off at a certain time, and, and that's true. But CAM is, a, again, a pretty complex process involving sort of a host of enzymes, right? Um, and, and we were able to look at the expression patterns of all of those and found that, I don't know which is more surprising. On the one hand, it's very similar, <laughs> right? And again, these are such divergent plants, both in, in where they grow and how they grow and evolutionarily speaking, that that was sort of surprising in and of itself. Mm. We see the same enzymes doing mostly the same things, but we did find some really key, interesting differences. Hmm. Um, so let's see, I guess... I'll, I'll, I'll lead with what I think is the most interesting, cool. and, and that is Pepsi. So Pepsi is found in all plants, right? Not just CAM plants. Like I said, um, CAM is, is using the same enzymes to do something differently, right? The same genes expressed differently. And in plants, there are, there are two types of Pepsi. One that we've known about for a long time that, that is often referred to as plant-type Pepsi. And then another one that was discovered more recently, only sort of in the, in the age of, of genomics, that, that is often called bacterial type Pepsi. Hmm. And it's called that because in, in phylogenetic analyses, it falls out very close to these Pepsis that we find in photosynthetic bacteria. In all plants, all plants where we've looked, CAM, C3 or otherwise, the one type of Pepsi, plant type Pepsi, 
is what is involved in photosynthesis hmm. everywhere we've looked. And the more that, that we've gotten sort of transcriptomic data back from, from other types of plant tissues, we have found that, that uh, bacterial type Pepsi plays a role in other processes. Um, it's found in really high abundance in castor oil seeds. And, and it's been suggested that a lot of the places it's found have very high concentrations of malate, uh -huh. um, which is interesting, right? If we yeah. think about CAM and the idea that these plants are accumulating lots of malate because Pepsi is, is sort of famously inhibited by the accumulation of malate. Hmm. So plant type Pepsi, malate accumulates and it slowly kind of stops working. But this bacterial type Pepsi actually forms a complex with plant type Pepsi, this large protein complex that can continue fixing malate, can continue producing more malate, even at higher concentrations of malate. So, I mean, right, this yeah. is very interesting that what we find when we look at isoetes is not only does this plant type Pepsi cycle, but the bacterial type Pepsi cycles along with it. Huh. They show the exact same expression pattern. And it, it's just not something that we've ever found in plants before. So what I want to say is clearly this is an adaptation to high levels of malate in the leaves. Wow. And, and this has co-opted this whole other kind of Pepsi to, to deal with this sort of unusual situation it finds itself in, right? Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not. But, but it's a very interesting correlation nonetheless. Sure. So the other differences we see are more subtle. Um, they're, you know, enzymes will maybe peak at a different time than you see in some other terrestrial mm. plant, uh, things like that. And, and that really gets to the other fascinating story that we find in isoetes. So more and more, as, as we've looked sort of in depth at, at the genomes and the genes that are transcribed in CAM plants and terrestrial CAM plants, we found that unsurprisingly, they're controlled by the circadian clock, right? Mm. The plant needs to know when it's day and when it's night, and it uses that to, to sort of regulate gene expression. So the second thing that we find in isoetes is that the circadian clock doesn't seem to function the same way as it, as it does in angiosperms in a lot of major ways. Hmm. So as you might imagine, circadian rhythms, right? The, the genes that control circadian rhythms in plants are very conserved. It's really important that plants can respond to that aspect of their environment. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, right. I mean, they're photosynthetic organisms. They really they <laughs> respond to, to when the sun is up, when the sun is down, when it's hot out, when it's cold out. Um, and the circadian clock is what allows them to do that. And so no matter where you look in most vascular plants, the genes in charge of that are are very well conserved. In a lot of cases, they're single copy genes. There's, there's only one of them, right? Um, hmm. So, so a, a great example is, is TOC1 or the pseudo response regulator one, PRR1. And, and this gene exists as a single copy wow. in basically every plant, um, except for ones maybe that have experienced recent whole genome duplication. Okay. But even in those where there's more than one copy present, there's typically only one that cycles. There's typically oh. one that's expressed differentially throughout the day. Wow. Isoetes has two. Huh. And not only does Isoetes have two, they're expressed at the wrong time of day. What? Um, Pseudo-response regulators uh, are, are typically, again, have these very conserved expression patterns. And Isoetes is off by 12 hours. It's, it's almost the exact what? inverse. <laughs> um, in what? addition to that, 
there are other important proteins they're missing, uh, or important genes they're missing rather. So, so Zeitloop is ZTL, is another important sort of circadian clock gene that we find in angiosperms. It doesn't seem to exist in isoedes. Uh, Gigantea, another really important one. Uh, isoedes has five copies. And mm -hmm. while it looks like only one of them is full length, um, and sorry, five compared to just one in most flower. Okay. And while only one appears to be full length, there's another one that is sort of a truncated copy that again, cycles at the wrong time. So while there are some circadian genes that do what we expect them to in isoedes, there's clearly a lot more going on there. And this probably has a lot to do with some of the subtle differences that we see in CAM. Certainly, if isoedes is doing everything the same way as terrestrial plants on the surface, behind the scenes, things seem to be proceeding very differently, huh. which is interesting, right? Because we look at terrestrial plants and we say, you've all evolved the same thing and you're all doing it very similarly. Maybe there's only one way this can evolve, right? Maybe there's sort of a path that this evolution has to follow for CAM to arise in these groups. Huh. Isoedes doesn't appear to have followed that path in all cases. <laughs> so, so again, I mean, it's, it's fascinating and really allows us to get it at what is the basis for this complex trait that we see evolving again and again and again. Um, that, that isoedes functionally appears to be the same in so many ways, but appears to have, have arisen or uh, arrived, right, at this conclusion that has come very differently. Whew, that is <laughs> wild. I Sorry, can't, that no, that was amazing. And it was an important sort of pathway for us to understand why this is so remarkable. Because... Yeah, I mean, other than the parasites that don't need to photosynthesize anymore, it, this is like the most vital processes going on within plant metabolisms. And it's amazing to think, you know, a few tens of millions of years is a very long time by our standards. But what can happen after hundreds of millions of years? And they might not be the originals or the progenitors of this process, but they've sure been at it for a very long time. And what better system to sort of start to dive in to say, okay, the hardware was kind of in place, but what they ended up doing with all of that can be vastly different. And, and you know, subtle differences aside, there's still differences. And, you know, when it yeah. comes to a metabolism, that can make or break, right? I mean, there's... Exactly. Yeah. Uh, wow. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we're at this sort of discovery phase, I guess, in, in a big way with, with what's going on inside of these plants. I mean, and already they're kind of this underappreciated group, I would assume, uh, even, you know, even among teridophiles. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Easy to overlook. <laughs> right. But now we're, you know, just as I see time and time again, especially in the plant world is like the more you start to dive in, like, no, these have so much to teach us for as weird and obscure as they can be in the common parlance of plant language and plant appreciation. There's so much there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's sort of, this has just really, so, so we discovered all this sort of in the process of putting together this genome and, and along with that did these sort of time course RNA-seq experiments, right? Mm -hmm. To look at what genes are being expressed and when. But this is a really preliminary look. Uh, you know, if, if you look at some of the work that's been done in terrestrial CAM plants, I mean, it's, it's overwhelming the amount of data that we have, <laughs> um, how thoroughly we've characterized, right? The turnover of different metabolites the expression of all these genes with the circadian clock genes are a great example. Yeah. We can see that those genes cycle differently, 
But when we try to look at, say, other genes that they interact with, right, um, other genes whose expression they affect, that's not nearly as straightforward because these, these elements that the circadian factor, transcription factors bind to aren't characterized in Isoetes. The best we can do is, is look for ones that we find in Arabidopsis. And again, hugely problematic, right? Because <laughs> Arabidopsis is, is separated by more than 300 million years. Yeah. So this is really just kind of scratching the surface of, of what's going on both with the circadian clock in Isoetes and, and also CAM. And I'm really looking forward to sort of digging into this more as, as part of my dissertation, where we're going to kind of do some comparative studies. Again, Isoetes is really interesting because not only can it do CAM photosynthesis, but as soon as it becomes emergent, as soon as it's above water, it starts doing C3. And even <laughs> they've shown that, that even as the tips of the leaves become emergent, the tips of the leaves start doing C3 while the rest of it's still doing camp. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're bizarre plants. Uh, oh, they're man. wild. <laughs> and, and so the next thing that I want to do is sort of repeat some of these time course experiments, but do it with, with the species Isoetes inglemanii, um, which is one of the ones that Jacob Suisa looked at when he okay. did his study. And and see what's going on um, as far as gene expression, mm. right? When these are, are emergent and doing C3 versus submerged and doing CAM versus emergent and doing CAM. Now that we know we can just drop the carbon dioxide level, mm. right? And, and induce CAM, we can separate sort of the response to being submerged from the response of being starved of carbon dioxide, which is, which is crucial to really uh, isolate the genes that begin cycling when CAM is happening, as opposed to genes that, that differ in expression because I mean, suddenly it's underwater, right? <laughs> right. Crazy for a plant to be. Yeah, and I mean, having just encountered my first, knowingly encountered, I should say, my first isoetes. I mean, it was on the side of this little. I hesitate to even call it a pond. It was like a ditch that had filled with water. And, you know, knowing how much rain we can get overnight here in the Midwest, I mean, that's a plant that can go from immersed one day to completely submerged within less than 12 hours. And to think that that process could be like that is also pretty exciting to think about. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's another sort of reason that this, this research is, is so interesting, right? Is these things live in, in really variable habitats, mm. um, sort of marginal habitats in a lot of cases where you don't find other plants that are, that are able to hang on. And, and it's sort of another common thread uh, with the fern research that I did as a master's <laughs> student, that the ferns that I studied, um, it was hypothesized for a long time that they really like growing on limestone, on these calcareous rocks. And uh, there, was a, there was a dissertation published at one point where a student basically grew these ferns on regular fern media versus fern media with crushed up limestone in it. Hmm. And they preferred the regular media. Yeah. <laughs> they, weren't, they, they were excellent survivors, but not great competitors. Hmm. And so anywhere where other ferns could grow, you often wouldn't find these. And I mean, sort of anecdotally speaking, and sure. I, I think I'm certainly not the first person to suggest this, Isoetes seems kind of the same way, right? It's capable of growing in these, yeah, really variable habitats, right? That are inundated one day and, and bone dry the next. Um, and, and in growing in these really oligotrophic waters, right? It's very low nutrient levels, yeah. um, just kind of slowly growing and hanging on. Um, and I, I think that's a really interesting avenue of, of research, right? Is, is studying these plants that are the real survivors. Yeah, the, the true tolerators. And I mean, there's fewer better examples 
in this day and age than something like an Isoedes. I can't reiterate enough how many millions of years they've been around doing this. And, and it's another interesting link back to the back to the terrestrial can plants too, right? right? Where do you find terrestrial can plants? Typically in these really marginal habitats where other things have a hard time growing. Right. They may not um, be winning races in terms of like speed of yeah. growth and competitive ability, but when you can get into an area where not many other plants can, that's open niches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> carving, so, carving a niche out, yeah. Thinking about that, you know, and kind of going back to what we had said about celebrating these as true survival success stories, not these sort of marginalized. I mean, in so many ways, they're less diverse than they were, but they've survived. And that's amazing. But even now, it kind of I see this sort of like dip where it's for a while, these were probably considered sort of, quote unquote, primitive a handful of species maybe hanging on in these marginal habitats really just kind of pushed to the edges of survival. Their heyday is over. But I think what you had sort of hinted at with polyploidy and hybridization, we're, we're finding there's actually more species out there, right? And a lot more going on with the story of diversity among the isoedes that shows that, okay, maybe our whole sort of view of these plants needs some serious updating. Yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Absolutely. And, and so, yeah, one of the fascinating things about Isoedes, right, is, is they are almost across the board seem capable of hybridizing with one another. And, and in fact, there have been experiments where they've taken really divergent species of Isoedes, put them in the lab together, and they, and they produce offspring. <laughs> um, now, the caveat is that offspring is typically sterile, right? Mm. It's incapable of reproducing. And while there are some exceptions, most isoedes don't seem to, to reproduce asexually a lot. So again, just to bring it back to ferns, the, the fern that I studied yeah. uh, was a triploid and, and so wasn't able to sort of produce viable offspring sexually, but it, it was very good at asexual reproduction, right? And, and so was able to propagate that way. Mm. With isoedes, on the other hand, what we see is that sometimes these hybrids get lucky and, mm. and they'll double their entire genome. They'll go through this whole genome process of whole genome duplication and produce um, allotetraploids. So, so hybrids that have uh, two copies of one parent genome and two copies of the other parent genome. Whoa. And in those allotetraploids, fertility is restored. Suddenly they're able to reproduce again. They're able to, to multiply and sort of form these, these populations. Wow. It's called, uh, you know, and so we call it allopoly deployed speciation. And, and that's another aspect that I'm very fascinated with. Another aspect of my dissertation um, that I'm actually going to do field work for next week. Exciting. Studying these allopolyploids and, and looking at how often they form, right? Um, how long they persist, because more and more we're finding that these, these plants that, that look the same aren't. There, there are tons of allopolyploids that, that constitute at least I think that constitute real species, right? Once their their complement of chromosomes is doubled, they're they're genetically isolated from hmm. the diploids that produced them, right? From from the parental species that made them. So by many definitions, right, that is its own species then. And I think again, not a lot of people have been able to look at this, at least from a genetic perspective. We've typically relied on morphology and and megaspore ornamentation <laughs> and and things that are not very reliable indicators of of what is a species, right? Yeah. Or, or not very good to delim delimit species with. And suddenly, now that we're looking with genetic methods, uh, with genomic methods in particular, we're finding that there's all this diversity that we didn't know about. Wow. All these endemic species, right, that, that might live in one place on top of a mountain or 
or all of these uh, sort of allotetraploids distributed in, in the intervening space between these various diploid distributions. Um, and it's really opening up a whole new world, I think, of, of Isoides research and changing the way that we kind of look at these organisms. Yeah, that's amazing. And I mean, the process you just described is essentially with a little bit of exaggeration and hyperbole here, creating a new species overnight through this duplication event. Absolutely. And when yeah. you have that happening, especially in remote areas, especially in areas where people aren't looking all that often, yeah, you can get to understand how there is all of this amazing cryptic diversity. But as exciting as that is from a research standpoint, I could imagine from a practical practicing, uh, trying to get data for a dissertation standpoint, that can also be kind of daunting and frustrating at times. As someone who's going out into the field to try to study this, to try to understand it better, what's that field process like? Because, like you said, you can't really like look at these things and say, I think that's this. Do you just have to collect and hope <laughs> when you look at the genome? There's, that... there's a healthy dose of that. <laughs> um, hopefully, hopefully none of my permitting agencies are listening. Yeah. <laughs> to there's, a, there's a healthy dose of that. Fair enough. That being said, megaspore ornamentation in a lot of species, you, you can at least get a rough idea of with a hand lens. Okay. Um, oh, wow. You know, these are called megaspores for a reason. They're big. Wow. Uh, I, I, you know, have looked at a lot of fern spores under a microscope, and, and they're these kind of relatively small, uh, like triangular football-shaped things, you know. Um, but but isoese megaspores are these large, uh, round, very elaborately ornamented structures. They're actually, they're very beautiful. I, cool. I encourage you or anyone listening to, to look up uh, some sort of scanning electron microscope pictures of them online they're they're beautiful really huh. um kind of like i i don't know like, if you're familiar with pollen diversity right there's a lot of yeah, diversity yeah. Of pollen forms and ornamentation on pollen it's, it's kind of very similar so you can get an idea in the field you can take out a hand lens and and as long as they're sporulating right which is the other frustrating aspect of this <laughs> if you happen to find an isoedes plant without spores on it yeah you're just kind of out of luck um <laughs> It, but if they're sporulating, you can get a hand lens out and sort of based on where you find them, um, habitat, there, there are sort of some gross morphology cues if you've looked at a lot of specimens, sure. um, certainly a lot more than I have. <laughs> I, I have the uh, benefit of sharing an office with Peter Schaffrin, uh, wow. who did his dissertation on isoedes, on diversity of isoedes, in fact, in the southeastern United States, which is nice. where I'm going to collect. And He's pretty good at picking up a plant. <laughs> I would hope. <laughs> squinting at it and squinting at it with a hand lens and telling what it is. I'm I'm not there yet, but yeah. but yeah, there's certainly a, a fair amount of of collect and bring it back to the lab and pray <laughs> and get it under the dissecting scope and really hope it's what you thought it was. I love that though because it's still as much as like the work has to be molecular in so many ways to truly start teasing apart these processes and understand the evolution. There's still this heavy field botany component to it. You're still doing natural history stuff. And as much uh, as credit as like Sedge and Rush people deserve and get within the botanical community, you know, they always joke, there's only a handful of us. Uh, but I would assume within the Isoides community, yeah, a few individuals smaller. Yeah. I, I have to imagine there are, there are like five people who are just stuck reviewing Isoides papers for the rest of their life, you know. Yeah. Uh, it. But yeah, we, um, I, I went to a, a, an Operation for Tropical Studies course in Costa Rica nice. at one point, and I was there and Peter Schaffin was there. Uh, this guy, Carl Taylor, who's a real giant in, in Isoides, um, has been studying it for decades. 
you know, could probably squint at one from a yard away. And <laughs> um, he was also there and we were joking, you know, that, man, if there's an earthquake now, we're going to lose like half the people studying <laughs> in the United States. <laughs> You're never allowed um, to fly in the same plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we have to, we have to leave one behind. Uh, I take good um, records. <laughs> yeah. But no, there, there aren't a lot of us, but you know. Yeah, but th- that's also kind of fun in and of itself is to get a group of people together that have fallen down this path for one reason or another and are so passionate and doing amazing things that, you know, on a group of plants that I can't reiterate enough how amazing they are and how long they've been at it. Uh, that's that's yeah. so cool. But, you know, kind of thinking about in the context of speciation, isolation, the size of their spores in general, and some of the marginalized habitats that these plants find themselves in. You start to think about dispersal, or at least I do. And dispersal is a strange thing. Uh, you know, you would think that if these things were going to get around, they need something smaller. So, do we have any indication how isoedes end up in different habitats or conquering new territory or anything like that? Because, like, going back to my example from last weekend, they may have been there, but I'm sure with all of the disturbance and the fact that that has been farmland for decades, they may have had to recolonize that spot. So, how'd they get there? Yeah. No, yeah. There are, uh, I mean, so there's some sort of low-hanging fruit, right? A lot of these things grow in grow in moving bodies of water, okay. so in streams and rivers, um, and and you have to assume that um, oh, and also the quills float. I should point that out. Oh. Um, so so the the quills or leaves, I keep calling them quills, but but they're leaves yeah. have these air spaces called lacunae in them, cool. and because of that, when they when they senesce from the main plant, they float up to the top of the water um, and can be dispersed at least downstream that way, right? Or, or maybe across a pond. But we also find isoedes in weird places. We find them in, in granitic pools on tops of mountains. There are terrestrial isoedes, not a lot of them, but there are truly terrestrial isoedes. Um, some probably not too far from you in the Midwest, oh. uh, in, in kind of Missouri and, and Illinois. And I think they get into uh, Eastern Kansas a bit and called isoedes butleri. Uh, that, that grow sort of on the prairie on, on limestone soil. Huh. Um, and, and there's another one in the West called Isoides Natalii. And how those disperse is, is a mystery. They find them sometimes in, in various animals poop, uh, <laughs> perhaps because they are grazing and eat them by accident. Uh, there was recently a paper, I think, where they found Isoides spores in, in black bear scat. Nice. Um, so, so that's always a possibility, sure. right? Uh, it's also been suggested, certainly with the aquatic ones, that they ride on the feathers of ducks. Uh, so these things float to the surface and, and, and maybe they, they get kind of interspersed with ducks feathers, but it's sort of a mystery, right? Yeah. Especially they're heterosporous. So, so you, you don't just need two spores. You need a, a megaspore and a microspore, right? To produce sperm and egg. They're aquatic. So unlike ferns and things, right, they find fern spores in the upper atmosphere. I mean, <laughs> they're capable of dispersing incredible distances yeah. through the air. These don't do that. Huh. Uh, so, yeah, it's sort of a mystery. We always come back to ducks. It's actually <laughs> sort of become a joke in, in our lab. <laughs> Thanks, um, ducks. Yeah, the, the, we always come back to ducks. Maybe they're eating the corms. Maybe they're getting stuck to their feathers. But but definitely, you know, wading birds, uh, water birds kind of go from one body of water to another. Right. It's certainly a possibility. But yeah, the terrestrial species, who knows? It's it's one of those things that, that until you really observe it, and gosh, I don't even know how you would. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, it's, it's a, one of the great mysteries of ICE. Yeah. I mean, having tried to track down seed dispersal data for angiosperms, oftentimes charismatic angiosperms at that, yeah. it's few and far between. So <laughs> extend that out to plants that many people have never even heard of before. Uh, you can get, begin to understand some of the life's great mysteries here. But it, to reiterate something I like to say time and time again for you know younger listeners or people just looking for a new way to think about the world or a new thing to tackle in their spare time even is there's still so many low-hanging fruit among a lot of yeah. different plant lineages that desperately need answers. And you would make a huge mark on a lot of these fields by trying to answer them. Absolutely. Uh, there's, there's so much to be done in the field. There's so much to be done under a microscope. You know, I think a lot of the time nowadays, especially, right. We, we think you need a, a big lab, you need to do lots of sequencing mm. and that certainly helps. <laughs> yeah. But, but that being said, I mean, there's so much to still learn in the field about these plants, uh, so much that we don't know. Right. And, and yeah, I think that's another reason that I'm really fascinated by them. That I really enjoy working with them. That's really exciting. And uh, I can't tell you how awesome this conversation has been just from my botanical nerddom perspective, but to also introduce people to this amazing world of plants that are kind of on the wayside. I mean, I would argue that of anyone in the sort of common ground world uh, knows anything about these plants outside of the science doing it uh, are the aquarium people that, that sometimes isoides do show up in aquarium plants, but you're really blowing the lid off of this for so many people. And I yeah, super appreciate grass, it. I believe it's, I Merlin's believe it's grass? Yeah, in the aquarium trade. Cool. <laughs> yeah, it, it pops up a lot when I'm doing, you know, various Google searches. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. No, and I, and I would imagine, you know, having started off kind of getting into ferns and, and sort of the weirdness of these plants that can adapt to conditions that are very non-traditional by what we kind of biasly assume about this group, that this has been a fruitful area of curiosity and intrigue and discovery for you. But, uh, you know, in moving through your, your PhD student, you're well on your way to finishing. What's kind of just over the horizon? You hinted at it, but what, what are you most excited about moving in? And is this something you see yourself really sticking with for a while? Yeah, you know, I, um, again, I didn't even realize that these, these plants did camp. I didn't realize aquatic plants did camp when I started this. <laughs> um, and, and I think that this project has, has really drawn me to, to cam photosynthesis and, and some of the regulatory processes involved in it. I'm really excited to look at this in more aquatic plants. Mm. I, I think that aquatic cam, if I can call it that, Do has, it. has a lot to teach us. Uh, about terrestrial cam, you know, um, I think the comparison of the two, I, I think it provides sort of a necessary counterpoint to, to all of the research that's been done in these other plants uh, to get at the root of the regulatory networks that are controlling expression of these genes. And also to sort of get at the root of, of how those regulatory networks can diverge, right? I mean, yeah. again, there's, there's, it appears there's not just one way to arrive at cam. Um, so I, I think that's really what I'm fascinated with moving forward. That being said, I, I mean, Isoides is always going to have a special place in my heart. <laughs> and if I can keep working on it forever, if I can keep getting funding to work on it forever, <laughs> right, right. I absolutely will. Uh, I, I think it's, it's just, it's such a cool plant and it's such a, it's such a mysterious plant, yeah. you know? Yeah. No, that's, that's fantastic. And it's so nice to hear someone still doing so much work and effort and, and have so much curiosity about arguably the most important process on this planet, photosynthesis. And we still have so much to learn about it. And it has so many applications. That's the other exciting part of this is, you know, 
even just from the human standpoint, places are getting drier. Precipitation is changing. Can kind of important in those contexts yeah. as well. So understanding how these processes work goes so far beyond just the botanical perspective. Not to say that that's not extremely important as well, but yeah. No, I mean, just briefly, another thing that's kind of become really popular, you know, in, in sort of the, the plant field lately is how, how do we engineer these things into crops? And, and one of the big things that we've learned, right, is, is a lot of it boils down to the circadian clock, boils down to how do we regulate genes subtly differently um, in a way that makes these plants much more efficient mm. at either conserving water or using available carbon dioxide. Um, and I, I think that that's going to be a really fascinating area of science in, in the next you know, in the years to come, uh, especially with all the sort of genomic resources that we have to leverage against these questions now. Yeah. And uh, how lucky are you to be working in a system of plants that uh, are not paying attention to the circadian clock? So yeah, think about yeah. ways that can help us learn about how this process plays out. Yeah, here I am. And it's like, you know, <laughs> finally, finally, we're able to look at these things in plants like isoedes. I mean, you know, it wasn't long ago that somebody working on a plant like this couldn't couldn't dream of having a genome assembly. Yeah. You know, um, uh, much less, you know, doing a lot of these other sort of experiments that, that we're seeing done in, in ferns and, and also lycophytes now. So, yeah, it's a very exciting time to, to be a, a pteridologist, yeah. certainly to be an isoetologist. <laughs> <laughs> if we can pretend that's a word for a <laughs> yeah, it's fine. A little bad. <laughs> There's so few of you, no one's going to challenge you. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic, David. I really appreciate you sitting down and very eloquently spelling all this out and showing us why this is an incredible system and why it's so important to study. But if people want to kind of keep their finger on the pulse of your research, find out more about what's going on in your lab and, and just kind of see where this goes in the coming years, how do you recommend they go about finding out more? Well, I, one of these days, I'll get around to making my own website. Uh, <laughs> until then, no rush. My my advisor's website is at uh, fernway.net. Okay, and it should you know let you know a little bit of what I'm doing. Um, I also have Twitter. Uh, you know, I'm on social media now and again. And yeah, keep keep checking Google and BioArchive for for papers we have coming. Awesome. Well, I'll put up links to save everyone the trouble. Don't have to pull over or Thank stop you. running or whatever you're doing. But uh, David, this has been awesome. Thank you so much. You've made a new Isoedes convert out of me. I mean, not that I wasn't interested in before, but <laughs> I was thinking a lot of more about them. And I might even go try to find some of those terrestrial specimens. So I'll, I'll send you a picture if I do. I love that. Awesome. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and uh, good luck on the rest of your PhD. I think uh, you're going to be fine, though. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much, man. It was, yeah. it was a pleasure. Awesome. Happy botanizing. Yeah. Bye-bye. Cheers. All right. That is it for this conversation. What an amazing dive into these obscure but fascinating little plants. I really appreciate David for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us, and I can't wait to see what comes out of research like his. It is so cool to get a newfound appreciation for a group of plants that have been a major curiosity for me for a long time. This is why I love doing this podcast. So if you like listening to these types of conversations, please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. I'll save you the spiel, but you can get a lot of great kickbacks in the process. And it's the best way to make sure this show has a future. You can also pick up merch from our merch store and stickers from our sticker shop. All of those links are in the show notes for this episode. Uh, please consider doing it because that's how this show stays up and running. 
Otherwise, make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in because conversations like these will continue to happen for as long as I can make them. So thank you again for listening. But until next time, get outside, stay healthy, and be good to each other. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.